This show is part of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To join our community Discord or see more content from our members, visit darkmorepodcasts.com. Hello, everyone. I'm John. And this is Stephanie. And welcome to Borrowing Brilliance, a new segment of Dragon Mind. In this segment, we borrow brilliance from some of the world's most insightful minds using their ideas to better ourselves as game masters, players, and people. In today's episode, Stephanie and I discuss professionalism, the qualities to look for when hiring a professional GM, and the mindset shifts that come with turning pro in any area of your life. If you have any insights or questions, be sure to head over to the Darkmore Podcast Community Discord and let us know in the proper channels. To support this podcast, make sure to drop us a review in your podcasting app of choice to let us know your favorite thing about Dragon Mind. So without further ado, let's get started. Good morning, Stephanie. How are you doing on this lovely Wednesday morning? I am wonderful, John. I'm still waking up a little bit, but I have my coffee, so we'll get there. So today's Borrowing Brilliance was requested by Darkmore Podcast community member Wise Jazzer, who had asked us a whole bunch of interesting questions on professional GMing. And professional GMing is kind of like a new industry. And just to start off with, neither of us are professionals in this industry. I've done a little bit of professional GMing uh, through Quester's Way, but Really, I think what it can speak to for any GM is just professionalism in general. We are living in this really exciting and interesting time where you can build a side hustle and even a career entrepreneurially in a lot of different directions. I I don't think that, I mean, I could be wrong. I was not a part of D&D 20 years ago, but I don't think that this concept would have even been possible except for a very specialized circumstance in a very specialized area so there's there's something really exciting happening where there's this ability for so many people to step out not just in dungeons and dragons but in a lot of different way and in momentum learning a lot of the people that we work with are entrepreneurial teachers that are either you know, trying to turn a side hustle into a main hustle, or or they're they're moving in a direction of financial independence through their own independent work and services that they can offer to others. And the internet has gives us this fabulous ability to connect to people all around the world that lets us branch out and do cool things like professional DMing. On a scale that wouldn't have necessarily been available, you know, a decade ago even. Yeah, and the whole thing with Dragon Mind, our tagline is we're discovering our best selves through gaming. And to me, that's a two-way street. So in one way, games like D&D or other TTRPGs are a way that you can test that kind of entrepreneurial spirit with something that's a little bit more familiar. So as the case with the professional GM, But it also works the other way around where maybe you approach the game with a certain level of professionalism and then you try to carry that over into the rest of your life as well. So even though the game is like a space of fun and play, by approaching it with a certain 
kind of professional mentality, you may be able to discover greater happiness and satisfaction in the rest of your life too. I think out of the gate, it's also good to to kind of talk about the fact that sometimes if you try to make a hobby or a passion a job, you can lose the passion for it. So if this is something that you're considering, you need to understand, and this is kind of the topic of today's podcast, but you do need to understand that it's going to change how you get to DM because you have to transition from just being a hobbyist or an amateur into going pro, which is different. You have to show up in a different way. There's a different level of pressure and responsibility. There's a, you're, you're raising the bar on the expectations. Um, and, and that can ruin the fun for, for some people. Um, it's kind of a silly analogy, but I kind of crochet for fun on the side. And I see this come across this, the crochet subreddit a lot of just people who, you know, either they, they know, so they refuse to take commissions or just bad experiences with taking commissions because they do it for the love of it and for the fun and the joy of gifting and, and that type of thing or for themselves. And then the second that they start doing it for money, all of a sudden it just changes the entire exchange. It changes the work. It's no longer a fun thing. It's now a job. And so you have to be careful about you know any hobby that you you entertain the idea of of bringing it into the professional realm it's gonna be different it's not it's not gonna be the same fun experience that it was still can be wonderfully you know empowering and you're bringing a contribution to the world and if you really truly are super passionate about it i mean we're we're hobbyists that turn our hobby into into our jobs with the martial arts. And we love it. We love the teaching and the sharing and, and getting to play karate every day. Um, so that's a situation where it worked out. But in a lot of ways, you know, for a lot of people in a lot of different industries, especially this type of one-on-one -on -one thing, you know, we have a team, we all support each other. And I think that's something that lets us enjoy it. I've known martial artists who were solely responsible they didn't have a team around them and it it did take the joy out of it because again all of a sudden it was work that you don't realize how much work it is to to do something in exchange for money yeah and also what you have to let go that you may not have expected right away so i think this is a great time to bring up uh, a really good case study and i i recommend watching this video for any of you listening to this ben Byrne from the ghost fire uh gaming podcast released a video on youtube talking about his experience as a professional gm having a team of professional gms and eventually walking away from it because he no longer enjoyed the game the same way and for him in particular this is the same company that released grim hollow for anyone that knows that setting it, he really loves kind of like the dark, creepy, eldritch vibes. But when you're a professional GM and you're opening it to a wider audience, that is a very specific niche that not everybody is going to enjoy. Some people just want goofy D&D. &D. So if you're a professional, you have to give up your what you personally want to run in service to your clients. And I have seen it where some GMs try to exchange services for money and try to do it with their friends and try to do what they want as opposed to what their clients want. 
And from my limited experience seeing a few cases, it doesn't really work out that well. So for me personally, I actually had a similar experience as Ben Byrne in that we talk about Gearis a lot uh, in either Barring Brilliance or other episodes, how amazing it is. But I was very intentioned about the fact that I wasn't going to accept money for it. So I wanted to approach it with a professionalist mindset, but without accepting any sort of income because I didn't want to be beholden in that way. I wanted to run the game I wanted to run. So what I gave up was the money part. So we just talked a lot about like cautionary tales of diving into this. So, And I think it would be good to touch on who might really enjoy taking this on as an entrepreneurial venture you know as a side gig or if you're really trying to to try to turn it into a main gig of someday you know if that's your your goal and uh, we talk about this a lot in momentum learning especially in our integrated entrepreneur program uh, but entrepreneurial minded people are problem solvers so and they're not satisfied with the solutions that are available and they're uh they're innovators and they're explorers entrepreneurs are risk takers so they're willing to kind of put themselves out there now that doesn't mean you have to be you know willing to put your house on the line to become a professional dm but it does mean that you're willing to take the risk of taking somebody's money and and hoping that what you deliver is what they expected to be purchasing. Um, so so you are willing to kind of put yourself out there to a different level, to a different degree. Uh, but some people thrive under that kind of pressure. Some people, when when they know that they're showing up for other people and that they're also going to get compensated for that time and that energy, that can really light a fire under them. So entrepreneurs are, are willing to take the risk and, and they're also willing to do the work. They're excited by the idea of doing the work. Because uh, one of the, the frustrating things about being an entrepreneur is you uh, you have to promote what you do, which I I love the work that I get to do. I hate the part where I have to try to do the self-promotion and and push myself out there and shout into the din of all the other people that are trying to do the same sort of thing. That part of the game for me is not fun. Now, I love what I do enough to be willing to do that part, but just know that it, it is hard to get noticed. You have to do a lot of work to get noticed. But if you're the type of person that likes engaging positively on social media, if you like being a part of the subreddits and offering suggestions, and if you're you know, someone that goes into Roll20 and looks around at the different games that are out there. If you're someone that's been running games on a platform like Roll20 for random people, you know, that you've never met before, because that's another thing. You can't expect your pool of friends to fund your venture. You're going to need to be willing and excited to meet new people and interact with new players, bring new people into the game. I think that's probably one of the the people in the market that are most likely going to be willing to pay for an experience is someone that's trying to learn how to play a new game as opposed to someone who already knows what they like and want so you need to know that you're you need to be excited about 
teaching new people. You need to know that you have the capabilities to teach new people effectively. Um, and again, if that's something that like revs you up, getting to bring new people into Dungeons and Dragons or whatever TTRPG you want to play. Um, every once in a while, I think about the fact that there's like a Star Trek TTRPG on Roll20. Because um, my parents always watched Star Trek growing up. So I enjoyed like Next Generation was a show we watched regularly. So I like, I think about it. And I would want to know that if I were trying that game, that it was with someone who knew what they were doing and was going to be professional because you hear horror stories about people trying to find dms and it's you know it, they they find people that are not good at what they're doing um so if you're putting a price tag on it it means that you're going to create a quality experience yeah the one thing i want to highlight is i find that a lot of successful entrepreneurs actually almost all of them um are excellent teachers and you mentioned teaching new players specifically, and that's what I was really going to key on, key in on, which is when you're thinking in terms of markets or even self-promotion, like one of the reasons we're okay with promoting our martial arts school the way we do is because it's educational. We're not saying that, you know, you need martial arts or you're going to get mugged and die. Like we're just speaking to some of the life benefits that the martial arts has bestowed upon people for generations and also like some very specific examples of lives that were completely changed including both of our own uh because of what the specific lessons of the martial arts have to offer so when it comes to professional gming i think that if you love teaching new players that's the thing that lights you up it's like a really good match in fact from my experiences G being paid to GM at Quester's Way, that's the part that I missed the most was just being able to run a one shot, having somebody who's never played D&D &D come in and watch their eyes light up as they discover the magic, especially if they've played other games before like World of Warcraft or other online games and just helping them discover how amazing it is when their imagination matters. So, John, what, in your experience, are the benefits of having a paid GM? Which we kind of, I think we kind of said, but just to sum it up, what are the benefits of paying someone to GM for your game? So the two biggest benefits that I noticed running games professionally and not for money, casually, <laughs> there we go, uh, are that first players, because they're buying in even a little bit, tend to be more incentivized to show up. One of the most notorious things that can shut down a TTRPG is scheduling. It's something we still combat to this day. And in fact, part of Gearus's success is that we addressed the problem of scheduling rather than the problem of, you know, what like like the actual rules of the game first. Um, but when players are paying for a GM, they're just more likely to continue and games are less likely to fizzle. And the GM is more likely to show up too. Both show up because, you know, I'm sure people have had the experience of their GM flaking before because um, that can happen. Lives can change. Uh, but then also like showing up 
presence wise, you know, not, not allowing life to get in the way. And then the GM shows up unprepared and, and it's okay. Cause it's just a casual session and whatever, you know, but if you're looking for an intensive experience where you in an immersive experience where you want the GM to come prepared, well, then you may need to be prepared to pay for that because we all have lives. And, you know, for some people, they have hours and hours that they're excited to commit to D&D. But, you know, for a lot of people, they've got jobs and families and other things going on. So sometimes they're not going to be able to prepare. And if they're not, if it's not something they're getting paid for, then they're going to need to prioritize the thing they are getting paid for, you know, the work that they do. So they may not have as much time to prep for a game. Um, but a professional GM should be, and you're, that's what you're paying for. You're paying for prep as well as the time. Absolutely. And the second benefit is I find that as a tendency, this is not absolute by any means, players just tend to take their experience a little more seriously. If you're playing a casual game and you're just hanging out on Joe's couch eating Doritos, there's a certain level of informality that that also brings that can prevent what a lot of people imagine TTRPGs to be like with the dramatic storytelling or whatever. Whereas ideally, if they're paying for it, now they know that they're paying into a certain experience that if the GM is GMing energetically professionally, like you were just mentioning, a certain culture is being established at the outset, expectations, boundaries, all that good stuff. So from my experience at Quester's Way, those were like the two big things that I noticed is just that games tend to fizzle less often because players and the GM actually show up and the players also show up more energetically. And that's a good point about the energy of professionalism. Um, and we are going to kind of talk about that throughout the podcast too. So there's, there's sort of three levels that you can listen to this episode from. There's the level of how do I look for a good professional GM? Uh, there's the level of, I want to get paid to GM. So I want to start thinking about what that means and, and what I need to do. And then there's also just, I want to, go pro in the way that I show up for my games. And that doesn't necessarily mean you want to get paid, but it means you want to create an experience that people take a little bit more seriously. And we've talked about how, you know, for me, when I create my characters, a lot of times I'm thinking on some meta level about my own life and a skill that I want to develop or something that I want to explore. And I'm going to use my character as kind of like the catalyst for, I don't know, just learning something new about the world, you know, whether it's uh, like cartography and instead of just like, you know, pretending stuff, you know, maybe diving in and learning about it in that way. If you want to use DMing as a way to practice professionalism and discipline in your own life with something that you're passionate about and, and practice just being the type of person that shows up and shows up well, and well-prepared for something, just like you can use your character to develop different aspects of your personality, you can use the the games that you're DMing or GMing 
to practice showing up prepared for your life, you know, practicing discipline of we like in the bird by bird episode way back about Anne Lamont's book, we talked about the, the habit of writing 300 words a day creatively, you know, that's a professional habit. That's, that's how you go pro is you create daily habits. You create systems that keep you moving forwards towards growth and, and towards yeah, towards growth. Um, <laughs> so, so if you want to use GMing to become a better version of yourself, going pro, thinking about going pro, even if you're not going to actually get paid, is a is a good framework for that. So, those are the three ways you can think about this episode. Um, so, John, how does one find a professional GM? So, to reiterate, this is a super new industry. It's almost like a little underground. There are times I'm a part of various D&D Facebook groups and stuff on social media. And every now and again, I'll see someone post like, hey, I'm a professional GM. I do this online through Roll20. There is definitely a way to do this online. Roll20 has services to help match up with GMs and stuff, some of which are free, some of which are paid. I think that finding a professional GM is a lot like finding a martial arts school where you kind of have to figure out what the vibe is and if the culture is going to match what you want. I would say as kind of like a very shallow filter, like first determining if they have like a trial session or something, if they want you to dive into some ongoing campaign and get inserted into a story that's established, I would meet that with skepticism. Um, having what been part of professional games where a GM attempts to do that, it tends not to work well for anybody. <laughs> so I, I think that if you're really serious about finding a professional GM, one way to do it is through a local game store. Um, a lot of local game stores I know have some kind of uh, TTRPG program, many of which have professional GMs that vary in prices and vary in quality. Another way that you can kind of determine if your particular local game store is right for you is to ask what their rules for TTRPGs are. Um, a good example is Ian was checking out uh, a local game store near him and they had like a two or three page packet just about their expectations. Like, And there were pretty generic things like, this is our rules for character creation. You know, if the GM is speaking, please don't argue with them on a ruling. We have a discord for you to ask questions later, that kind of thing. So largely you're just trying to find somebody that meets the same vibe, which isn't very objective, but I find that because TTRPGs are such a human thing, you almost need like a human element <laughs> in order to figure out if it's a right match. I was curious and I was just, puttering around on roll 20 and it looks like on average it's $15 a session which which I think would make sense um and I think it also has to do with length so like yeah. a $25 session may be longer than a $15 session I think finding GMs that are looking to get paid is probably going to be easier than finding one that is the right fit for you uh, so it's almost like hiring someone uh, for your business or hiring a consultant. You know, there's you want to make sure that. So I know a lot of times in the, the TTRPG world, we can be 
we can start feeling a little bit desperate <laughs> for people to play with and for games to play in because scheduling is so hard and it can be hard to find people that match, you know, what, what goals you're looking for. Um, but the, the beauty of, you know, places like roll 20 is there are a lot of games out there. So if, if you're not, if you're not really worried about like playing with specific people, you know, it's not like you're trying to, coordinate schedules with a friend group. If you're just like, I want to find an awesome game to play in with people that I can like mesh with, you know, then there's a lot that's out there. So do the work of shopping around a little bit rather than just settling uh, for, you know, for people that you don't necessarily gel with. Um, and I think it's good to kind of think about, you know, this, this is a self-awareness piece of knowing who you are and what type of people you're going to gel with. And then also knowing what to look for in a leader as well. Um, so when you connect with someone that's going to be your GM um, and actually John here, I'll throw this to you first. Like what, what do you want to look for when you're thinking about hiring someone handing over hard earned money to someone to provide you with a service because that's what they're doing. Um, so what are some things you want to look for? So, for me, the number one thing is reliability. Like you mentioned earlier, Stephanie, if I'm going to pay someone to GM a game for me, I not only want them to show up, I want them to show up on time. And I also want them to end on time. Something that used to drive me a little bonkers about games is they just kind of end when they end. And oftentimes you're playing until 2 or 3 a.m., and it's like, I got a job to go to tomorrow, man. Or, you know, I, I don't want to spend all, my whole Sunday just recovering from staying up this late. So I think that like timeliness is a huge part of like crafting the experience. Um, Another one is clarity. So are they able to communicate clearly and honestly? They have a clear promise for what their game entails and they stick to it. So that doesn't mean that there can't be changes. Like if you're doing like an ongoing thing and the players discover that they like something else and the, the players in the GM agree to steer the campaign in another direction. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about they, as a professional, they are promising a safe environment. And then later the environment doesn't feel safe or they promise that the game is going to have some content and not other content, but then they introduce that not content into it. So that clarity, are they able to communicate clearly and honestly? Composure. So even if their players aren't keeping their emotions in check, can the GM demonstrate emotional resiliency? Competence. Do they know the rules and are they organized and consistent with what's going on? One of the hard parts about TTRPGs is oftentimes you get into situations that the rules don't cover. So it's not even like a ref making a call where it's like, eh, was their feet on the line, over the line? It's There are complete situations you have to make up on the spot. Are they able to be organized with their thought? And again, keep that composure while improvising and also be consistent so that they're not showing favorites. And then... The last one, which we've talked about a little bit, is presentation. If you're paying for a professional experience, there should be some kind of appropriate presentation with what they're doing. For some GMs, that may be the use of 3D terrains or music. 
depending on the environment, those things may be inappropriate. Like if it's a local game store, you can't be blasting battle music while customers are shopping. So it's just being aware of your environment um, and then doing whatever you can to create an environment that's easy to immerse in. There's a principle in business that is a, a hard lesson to learn uh, and, and a hard lesson to implement too, but uh, you want to hire slow and fire fast. So that means that you do due diligence, you know, moving it. And now that, that hiring slow, especially in this setting can mean before you commit to four sessions, you know, like I've seen games on roll 20 where it's like, it's $15 a game or $50 to sign up for four games. You know, maybe you want to sign up for one game first before you jump in and do the four games, you know, or maybe you're willing to tough it out because, you know, you're, you're willing to, you know, you don't care that much if you're going to lose, you know, if it's a bad experience and you lose the money, you know? Um, so take the time, like I would, if at all possible, reach out to the DM GM and have a, a conversation with them beforehand where you can kind of get a sense for who they are, the type of players they like to play with. You know, if you can at all have that, you know, interview before you hire them, that would be ideal. And then fire fast doesn't mean the first time that they mess up, you kick them to the curb. What it means is when you realize that the relationship is not going to work, you let that person go rather than dragging it out and making everybody miserable. So we had this experience happen where we dedicate ourselves to being teaching facility, including for our employees as well, which means that we're going to help grow them into the employees, the teachers that we want them to see. This is what we did in Quester's Way. Now, one of the mistakes that we did make in Quester's Way, because it was the first time that we hired people, you know, in the martial arts, you have 10 years to get to know somebody before you're going to pay them, at least the way we do it. You know, we hire from the inside, it's, you know, like you're a perfect example. You started when you were five and you were there for, gosh, 15 years before you, you actually got hired, you know, so that you had a 15 year long job interview, basically. So we got to Quester's Way, this much larger facility with a restaurant and an indoor play park and everything. And we didn't have 15 years to, you know, to get to know somebody. Um, so we, you know, there were some people that we hired that were not good fits. Now, in response, we developed a, a hiring system that we now use to, to make sure, you know, we filter as much as possible. But what happened was we were so committed to people and to trying to help people that we kept trying to help them long after it had demonstrated that it was not going to work out. It wasn't a good fit for them. It wasn't a good fit for us. Nobody was going to be happy no matter what we did. And we dragged our feet on making that decision of letting them go. Everyone would have been better off if we had just let us all move on, you know? So if you're, if you're working with the, you know, if you've done two sessions and you're like, man, this GM is just, they're not listening to me. I, I feel frustrated every time I play. I just find another game to play. Like it's okay. There's uh, a sunk cost fallacy of feeling like, oh, well, I've already, I've played five games. I'm committed to this character. I've spent all this time. I don't want to give it up. But if you're going to continue to be miserable or frustrated playing the game, it, then move on, like break, break that up before it goes on for too long. There's two extensions I'd like to add to that. Um, one being that if you're a GM, 
that's professional in like a local game store environment like I was in Quester's Way. Or if um, you're gathering people that don't know each other um it this is this is different than if it's like a whole friend group that hires you for like a party which we'll talk about in a little bit but if you're a professional gm you may have to fire a client too um i just remember there was uh, a particular player while we were at quester's way and they just wanted to integrate inappropriate content into the games that they were a part of and even though everybody else in the room was an adult it just didn't jive with what they wanted out of the game. They wanted a lighter experience and this player wanted to be tortured and all that stuff. So although it's super difficult and it can create animosity, the best option may be to fire that player because they're bringing down the vibe of the entire group. And the other extension is just that this idea of hire slow, fire fast can also extend to casual groups as well. Sometimes you need to have the hard conversation with a player of this behavior is inappropriate. And Ken mentioned that, like you said, you don't want to fire them on the first offense or the first mistake. You want to give them the room to grow. And again, when you realize that the relationship just isn't working out, sometimes that's the best thing to do for everybody. I thought it would also be helpful to just think about a couple of uh, we'll we'll do it. We could do it from the positive perspective, but I'm, I'm going to go from the angle of red flags. So if you are in that position where you get to have an initial interview with the person that you're looking to hire as your GM uh, or the other way around, too, I think these could also apply. Um, these are just some of the things that I thought of to to watch out for um, where you could end up in a situation where the game is is not as fun. Um, now. It is good to know or, or good to point out that you're not going to perfectly gel with everyone. So this isn't like a put yourself on some high horse and, you know, expect perfection from the person that you're hiring. This is just, you know, just within reason, you know, you want to look for for these red flags, um, a lack of responsiveness without parameters of when they're going to be available. So if you reach out to someone to ask them about playing in their game and a week and a half goes by and then they're like, oh, sorry, I got busy, you know, or that type of thing, you know, that's that that may be something that could create an issue. If you're tr constantly trying to connect with them and they're not communicating with you. Now, if they say, this is my side hustle, Fridays are my GMing day. So you may not hear from me during the week, but on Friday I am available. You know, now that's a clear, respectable boundary. So just because they're not responsive Monday through Friday, because they have a job and a family doesn't mean that, you know, that's a red flag. It's a red flag if they're, if they, if they just ghost you for a while and then all of a sudden reappear and then they're gone again, you know, like that kind of thing. So a lack of responsiveness when you're initially communicating with them, uh, decisions or pronouncements without explanation. So if you're asking about like character creation or if you can do certain things and they're just sort of like just saying no, like just nope, and they won't tell you why. Um, and, and even so there are times where, you know, someone will ask to do something in the game or ask to, to do something with their character and you'll say 
no, like I don't really have, sometimes you'll even say, I don't have a concrete reason why right now I'm just nervous that it'll throw off the dynamic of the game. So I'm going to say no for now, but I'll, I'll think about it, you know, so they don't have to necessarily have a perfect answer, but if they're just like, no, that's not how we do it, you know, and they don't give you any sort of explanation and you just feel kind of cut off and shoved aside, you know, that's something, if that happens once, it could happen again. So if they're making these authoritative pronouncements without explanation, um, that's kind of a red flag. Uh, an unwillingness to explore ideas kind of goes along with that. So a green flag would be getting excited when you offer a creative idea that's maybe different. And they're like, oh, I haven't thought about it that way. You know, I need to make sure it's not going to throw off this dynamic down the road, you know, but that sounds cool. Um, you know, any of their times we ask to do stuff in game and you're like, that's really creative, but no, we're not going <laughs> to, that's going to, that's going to break it. We're not going to do that, you know, but you, you express excitement for our engagement. Um, so if they're unwilling to explore creative ideas at all without, again, without explanation, if they have good reasons from experience, that's different. But if they're just like shutting things down and they just want it the way they want it, that that could, you know, get kind of frustrating. Um, if they have unclear boundaries or play style. So like if you're trying to ask them about like what pillars of play that they, you know, emphasize the most or uh, you could probably come up with with better things than I could being immersed. But just if you're trying to ask them about their style or their boundaries within the game and they're very wishy-washy and unclear or they're just giving you answers that are confusing you know that that tells you something about their ability to uh communicate and also how aware they are of themselves and their own play style and then the final like big red flag would be defensiveness if you're offering ideas and they start getting kind of feisty if they get challenged like if you're questioning why they do things and they're getting frustrated by your curiosity and desire to understand um that's something to be aware of now of course there's always the flip side to that of they could be getting defensive because you're asking bluntly and you're the one that's not communicating well so there's a self-awareness that goes along with this it takes two people to have a conversation um so it's not necessarily all their fault we talked about pretty sure we talked about uh, personal personnel process on a different podcast. So recognize that you have as much that you're contributing to this dynamic as they are. Um, but, uh, but just, you know, and, and you know what, if you're a blunt person and they can't handle bluntness, not a good fit. You need to find someone that can, that can handle that. And that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you or them. It just means it's not a good fit. And that's actually the, the hiring process that we developed, the seven-step hiring process that we use in our businesses now, we call the fitting room because, you know, it, it's something where you, you have, it has to be a positive fit on both sides. Sometimes you see the clothes on the rack and it looks really good and then you try it on and it's awful because it just doesn't fit your body style. And then there's other times where you're like, ugh, that thing is terrible. But for whatever reason, you try it on and then it looks really good on you because, you know, once it's on your body, there's it's a positive fit. So it's exploring the, the dynamic and recognizing that there's not anything wrong necessarily with either part. It can just not be a good fit. Well, and I'll offer the other side, which are the green flags. So obviously, if you're 
going back through the red flag Stephanie just mentioned, and you think of the opposite, that would be a green flag. So if they're very responsive with communications, if they get excited about things, if they have reasoning to why they're making calls, even if they're saying no, um, those are those are all green flags that might indicate it's a positive relationship. One other thing I would add as a green flag is, or potentially a red flag, is what tools and resources do they have on offer? So I knew that Jackson from True Sight RPGs was legit because I went to his website and there was a calendar with a link, like you said, where it's like, these are the days I can talk to you. This is my rate. This is what I have very specifically on offer. Um, his website is beautiful. It's very, very simple, very clean. Um, it's not cluttered with random stuff. So for for me, if I were to hire a professional GM, that was a very, that, that was a green flag for me. We talk a lot about having awareness of your own play style. And it's good if you're, if you're looking to hire a GM, it would be good to have some questions that can help you filter for someone who's going to, to play like you, you know, just seriously, like a job interview. So like maybe something like, you know, how do you handle nat 20s? You know, if I'm asking to do something that's next to impossible in real life, you know, and I crit success on it, you know, what, what does that mean? How would you react to that as the GM? And then their response is going to tell you not just about how they would rule in that, that setting, but also their thought process of how they're going to, and you want to be listening for the meta of how they're like, what process do they go through? What do they think about? How do they explain and justify whatever decision they make? So if you give them some like you have some concise, clear little mini scenarios that you say, like, how would you react in this situation? And then you'll you'll get a feel for how they think through problems and um, how supportive they're going to be of player creativity, that type of thing. And then if you start playing with them and it doesn't match, because there's plenty of times companies hire employees and it turns out the employee lied their way through the interview or they were just really good at interviewing. And, and then there's also times where people are bad at interviewing, but they're great at their job. So there's, it's a, it's an interesting dynamic, which is a whole nother conversation. Um, but hiring is a, is a challenging job. A lot of companies do it wrong, but we won't get into that. I do want to add some other questions. I think that would be good food for thought. So on the flip side of the nat 20, how do you handle nat ones? Very specifically, I remember when I was first GMing a lot, one of the things you asked me was, can our nat ones be like a little more silly or can a more exaggerated thing happen? And I was like, no. <laughs> and the reason was because I had experience where nat ones were almost too bad. It was like a personal wound for me where I say had the story in my head, my character's a super competent fighter type. And it felt like when I got a nat 20, it was like, all right, you do double damage. But when I got a nat one, it's like, you're an idiot and you hit your friend because you're stupid. Like, so I didn't want nat ones to be overly punishing, but I wanted nat 20s to be like really celebrated. So you're not dwelling on the failure cases. That's not what you're walking away with as a memory of the game. You're thinking about the awesome nat 20 that happened. Um, another one is how to handle creative descriptions. So kind of on your case, like, all right, Let's say we're fighting a giant worm monster. 
and I shoot it in the mouth with an Eldridge blast. Would anything extra happen because I got that? A lot of GMs very reasonably as part of their style would say, no, it's just the game rules don't dictate that. And we don't want to overpower anything. Personally, my style is, yeah, it might do extra damage or cause it to throw up or something. I don't know. But the idea that part of the very specific culture of the tables I run is the more descriptive my players are and the more creative they are with their tactics, the more I want to reward them with mechanical effects that reinforce how valued their imagination is. It's also totally cool if you want to run a more balanced rules as written game, and that's an upfront expectation. Um, it kind of helps you learn the game a little bit better that way, if that's what you're interested in. And then the last one is, let's say I'm uncomfortable with my character just dying outright from a random goblin arrow. How would you rule it? And again, there are some GMs that are like, that's just how the dice roll. Your, your character dies. There are other GMs, like I tend to fall on this one, where, all right, your character might die. Maybe in the transition between life and death, they get noticed by an otherworldly entity who offers to resurrect them in exchange for their servitude. Or maybe it's like I have extra padding on the death saving throws or something like that. Um, or another character can sacrifice themselves and jump in the way of the arrow if they want. Like, none of those are the right answer, but they do give you a good idea up front with whether or not this game style is going to mesh with what you're going for. I'm sure there are a lot of people that were just like ripping their hair out hearing you talk about all that GM BS <laughs> to make it okay. But I know like for me, I I don't want my character to die until I'm unless I'm okay with them dying. You know, and and so if I were going into a situation and and I knew it, it would just it might change the way I play. So if I knew that my character could die at any time, I would probably think about playing that character differently or I would invest different, you know, levels of attention into it. But I I like that trust. I know that you have our backs, basically, that you're not going to let anything happen to our character that we wouldn't want to happen you know and that doesn't mean that you're holding our hand all the way through and that we never get hurt or we never go down or whatever stuff there's definitely things happen that's outside of our control but I know you're not going to do anything to embarrass our character to kill off our character before we're ready or do something that's going to make us uncomfortable with like something story changing to the character without like permission essentially if that makes sense um so there's there's trust there and there's you know there's people in our game that will uh that just say like you could do whatever you want you know like just take my character wherever you're going to take them and that's part of the trust is if we care you you know and again you're not coddling us there's a difference there's a fine line that you walk between developing trust with your player and just babying them and creating it's just like raising a kid you can create a really entitled player you know if you can't make everything go their way you know the dice do the dice in the end rule the game um but but we know that you're going to take care of us as a as a gm and that's important to my play style so that's something that I would look for, or at least be aware of. I want to be aware of, of how the GM's going to rule stuff. Well, and to loop back to the whole, like, imagining people ripping their hair out, listening to all my GM BS, um, 
that is also why I elected to stop GMing professionally, because I knew that the overall culture of who my clients may be would not lean toward my personal preferences um, or being able to give so much one-on-one -on -one attention to a close-knit group of friends. So if I have to try to appease, say, 20 people, I'm not going to be able to give like individual attention to your characters the way that I like doing it. So I decided to give up the money part. I think it's good to be aware of the fact that you could choose, if you wanted to and you had the time, um, you could choose to take Gearus and what you created and put it onto roll 20 and invite new players um, with the rules that you have established for how you play. Um, and uh, there is nothing wrong with, and we've, we, we have talked about this, but just based on what you said, I, I think it's good to reiterate there's, you can, you can ask for money, you can get paid and also still have clear parameters on what's acceptable in your games and what style of play you're going to have. In fact, the clearer you are on who you can serve and who will enjoy your game, you know, you can even have that in your, your description, you know, as you're, you know, in the description of the game, you can say, who will love this game? People that like, you know, intense settings where you could die at any time. People who, you know, are uh, like coming up with creative solutions to problems and are okay with the GM rewarding creativity over dice rolls or something like that. You know, so you can you can kind of lay out the the framework of who you are and then you can attract the right people by expressing clearly who would enjoy your game. And then, you know, and especially I, th I think for most people, they're not going to dive into this. This is not something you can dive into head first and just like put all your eggs in one basket. So you can let this be something that grows kind of slowly where you find the right people, you create a reputation for yourself, you collect testimonials that you can then like slowly build out, you know, the service that you offer um, into a way. And that that is something, um, I mean, we don't have to go down that rabbit hole um but in terms of putting yourself out there professionally um there we're gonna talk about the tools that you need to run a game you know like if you're in a a store or something or you're professionally you're like a party gm that's going to people's houses you know it would be good to have maps and minis and you want to make sure you're creating an experience that demonstrates a level of investment and professionalism. You don't want to go in there with just like a whiteboard and then using dice for, you know, to signify your goblins. Like that's not what I'm paying for. Um, so, you know, and then if you're online, obviously it's having a good internet connection, having quality maps and tokens set up, you know, in whatever platform that you're using. Um, but the other side of the tools is things like, you know, depending on how serious you are having a pro professional website, like you said, Jackson had, it's, uh, you know, being active on social media, like we mentioned in a positive way, where again, you're kind of creating a reputation, um, making sure this is something we've been bad at for years, honestly, um, in the things that we've done, just collecting testimonials, just taking the time to ask somebody like, hey, if you enjoyed the game, can you write two or three sentences that I could use, you know, that, that, 
you're comfortable with me putting on my website, that type of thing. So asking for testimonials from people and then sharing that, you know, putting, being willing to put it out there. So if you have a Facebook page that is for your professional DMing, you know, being like, oh, I had a great time doing this game. Here's what so-and-so said about it, you know, and create a little Canva meme about it or whatever, you know, a little Canva post. Um, so taking the time to professionally display who you are and what you have to offer. That's a, that's a piece of it as well, potentially, depending on how, how much you're looking to do with it. Yeah. Just to solidify that point, um, just to loop back to something we kind of started with, which is uh, figuring out right scaling. So if you want to do this as kind of like a little side hustle and you only want to run one or two professional games, the parameters that you set out can be more specific because you're trying to capture less total people. Whereas I guess what I was speaking to is, you know, in Questor's way, when it's kind of open and anyone from the, we want anyone from the public to be able to come in and experience more like a generic D&D game, the parameters had to be a little bit more open to accept more people. I think figuring out what scale is ideal for you is a great place to start with the option of as you grow uh, a reputation and the ability to grow over time, you can you can start to branch out in other different ways. Yeah, and recognizing that you can have essentially different products or different levels for different people. So you can have something where when someone comes in, they need to do, you should have some sort of fitting room hiring process essentially, where when someone comes in, when they enter in, they're like when they're playing with you for the first time, there's certain games that are available. Maybe they can only do one shots with you. And then from there, they like graduate into being able to do a certain type of campaign that has a certain time commitment to it. And then, you know, so they kind of earn a spot and you can almost level up. And then that way you can create a filtration system as well, because you know, if you have the person that's super excited, but not a good fit, and they're like, I want to do the year long campaign. And now it's hard to tell them no, or maybe you don't realize it until a month in. And now there's this sunk cost of like, well, if I kick them out now, then I only have a three person party. And I don't know how I'm going to integrate someone else and blah, you know, so it just creates it, it creates problems. So if you create a system where when people move into it, they start as a white belt. And first they have to go through not, maybe they know how to play. Maybe they're an expert in playing, but they're not an expert in playing with you. They need to learn your style and you need to learn their style. So you have this sort of like beginner experience, this introductory experience so that people can learn who you are. And then from there, it opens up different tiers of play with you. Because again, they could have been playing D&D for 30 years sometimes they're the worst people to play with because they think they know everything. So, you know, they, there needs to be a process and, and then be transparent with that process and say, look, like whether you're brand new or you're a veteran player, we've never played before. So let's, let's do a test run and make sure we like each other because I may not be the right GM for you. And I want to make sure that you have a good experience. So let's try this out first and see if you like, my play style and if it makes sense for you and then you know and then we'll go from there and we can look at longer campaigns um and you take it from that angle too of putting it on as a service for them as taking care of them so it's not like i might not want to play with you it's it's more like you might not want to play with me so let's let's test that out first and then, you know the other half of the equation is there but as the professional 
you're you're putting your customer first in terms of how you frame the conversation. Actually, that reminds me of another green flag I wanted to mention, which is if a GM recognizes early enough in the relationship that it might not be a good fit, being willing to, you know, just mention that. So you've you mentioned uh, recently, like you were talking to some marketing kid and you were impressed because very early on in the interaction, uh, he said, you know, I don't think I can provide the service that you want. So for my table, there have been times where uh, a player wants very exact measurements. Like they want to know that this is a 100 foot cliff and that if a player gets knocked off of it, they will take however many D6 like damage, like as soon as they hit the ground and that I will not buffer at all. And my style is no, I'm going to, I'm going to say certain things are arbitrary to give me the narrative freedom to come up with GMBS in case I want there to be a ledge for them to catch because that creates a more tense cinematic moment in my eyes. So for certain players, I've had to be like, no, I'm not going to do this. And I may not be the right fit for you based on what you would like out of the game. So to me, that's always been kind of a green flag of being able to admit this may not be a good matchup. We can try to meet in the middle, but just know going in that it may not work out. Well, Grimton, Melinda and Ulrich are gone. We're in a new, unfamiliar land of Kolgafir. What's our first move? Polaris, I'm not too certain, but I did hear Fishbelly talking about something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With the warlord's half-sister in a meeting. Yeah, that's about the only lead we have so far. We haven't been here long. Might be worth checking out. Seems like a plan to me. Join us as our party explores an unforgiving region of the cusp and allies with new party members in arc three of Advantage, a fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons audio drama focused on storytelling and character development in the Darkmoor Podcast Network. Find us in your podcast app. So real quick, let's just kind of run down the checklist of of being a professional DM. So first of all, you need to understand that you're going to need to put yourself out there in a professional way. Uh, so that means kind of knowing how to essentially write copy to some degree. So if you're looking to put yourself out there on Roll20, look at the successful games. Don't copy their descriptions, but look at how they're presenting themselves so that you also present yourselves in a professional manner with the, the relevant information that people need to know. So there's the presentation going into it. Um, then there's how you set yourself up, uh, the structure that you wanna use. So are you a party DM where you just do one shots and you go to people's houses, you know, and, and you provide an experience or is it something that you're doing um, membership based where they're coming you know, you're showing up to a location, whether it's somebody's house, your house, a game store, whatever, and and they're on a almost like a subscription basis. Uh, and then there's also online, and there's multiple ways you can set yourself up online. Um, and like we've been talking about, it would be really good to have some sort of trial membership, an onboarding process, some way that you get to know the person before it becomes a long time commitment. So once you've figured out your structures, 
then you need to start to figure out the, the price point that you want to be at. And there's a lot of things that you have to think about. We've worked with entrepreneurs uh, who did like knitting and crochet and that that's a very time consuming thing to produce, you know, an item, uh, to, especially depending on what it is. And there was one uh, person in particular that we talked to and she was looking at kind of going pro and, and selling her crochet and she or knitting, I forget exactly what she did, but she figured out that with the amount of time it was taking her to do the prep and then the price point she was selling the item at, she was basically making like $4 an hour. You know, she wasn't even making as much as a McDonald's worker. And that's not, so if you're, if you're charging $15, per person to play your game. You've got four people in your game, that's $60. So let's say that your game is two hours long. You might be thinking that you're making $30 an hour for that game session. But if it took you 10 hours to prep, you're making well below minimum wage. So there needs to be a balance there. When you're looking at your price point, you need to consider the time investment of prep and the actual sessions themselves. You need to look at the value of what you're offering. So you need to be realistic about your own experience and skill um, and the environment that you're creating. So if you're coming to somebody's house with a suitcase full of 3D scenery and minis and all kinds of stuff, if you've got hundreds of dollars worth of supplies that's helping create this immersive experience, you can charge more than if you're just rolling up with a couple of minis and a mat, you know, or if it's a, you have a mat and it's like provide your own minis, you're charging a lot less. So they're paying for the value that you're offering. And then you also have to be aware of the demand as well. So if you're in San Diego, California, there's a lot of people, there's kind of a culture out there. Um, I actually, I know someone who uh, lived out there and they had people that they played with that were like making good money, you know, like six figure incomes. That's different than being in an area where the average household income is more like $70,000 a year, you know, that you have to kind of know your market. Um, and then if you're looking at something like roll 20, you know, what's, what's the demand for the system that you're you're playing and, and what's already out there. Uh, so, and that's gonna, all of those things are going to factor into the price point. And really a lot of times it just comes back to what the market can handle. Um, so when you're thinking about if you're gonna do a professional DM or GM thing, you're gonna wanna think about how can you streamline your process to make it as effective as possible and also to some degree duplicatable. So your trial experience, should be a specific module that you prep once and then you use it again and again and again. And it's something that's, you know, it's interesting, it's creative, you're not gonna get bored doing it multiple times, but it's something where you're not re-prepping a new thing and spending 10 hours every time you go to do a one-shot experience. You know, you need to have some duplicatability because otherwise you can't scale. There's, if you need 10 hours of prep for every game you play, you are severely limited on how many games you can offer. But if you have, if you have fully prepped modules ready to go, adventures ready to go that are yours, they're unique, you, you created them, and now you can just run them again and again and again. Now you have more time in your schedule to do the thing that actually makes you money, which is showing up to the table. Yeah, there's also a side hustle to the side hustle, potentially. 
um, which is if you do create like an original module for trial purposes, like put it on DMs Guild or Drive Through RPG. Like the one of the beautiful things about like you mentioned this kind of like entrepreneurial fertile ground that we have right now is that pdfs have very low overhead <laughs> so it's you there it's not like there's like a physical thing that you're sending out so you know i i know a few people who have including myself that made like a an i amount of money <laughs> just just doing contributing to some digital product if as if you're interested in that side of things that sort of evergreen product so something that you create once and it makes you money again and again and again it like it never goes stale um then what you can do is you can use your paid GM experience to test and fine tune that product till you get it to the point where you know that it works really, really well. And then that's a selling point when you go to sell the adventure module, if that's what you're doing, because you can say this has been tested in over 20 games in over 30 games. It's, you know, it's been fine tuned over a year of being played you know, by seven different groups of people. So now that becomes a selling point that adds to the validity. And also, if you're being smart, <laughs> while you're doing it, you're collect collecting testimonials from people that went through the module of how much fun they had playing the module and how well balanced it was or how creative it was or whatever. And now you can use that to put into your copy as your, you know, your marketing copy, when you go to sell the actual product, you have testimonials from people who actually played through it. Um, so all of these things can feed and this is the entrepreneurial thing. It's like how, how can one thing feed into another? Um, how can you, it, it's much easier to sell someone again, than it is to find a new customer. So what's the chain? How can you keep offering value? And for us, it's, increasing value over time. So in our martial arts school, our, we never raise our rates as long as someone stays a membership with us or keep, maintains their membership with us, their rates never go up. So we have people paying the same rate that they were 15 years ago because they're still a member. And even though our prices have gone up, theirs have not um, as long because they've stayed consistent all the way through. As they get higher in rank, more opportunities open up to them, like weapons training and leadership and demo team and all kinds of different programs. Um, we do, you know, like just for fun events where the kids just get to come and just have fun doing something cool with their instructors. We do not charge for those things. That's how we increase value, almost like a, a loyalty program. So as people move through, the longer they stay with you, how can you continue to reward that for them? How can you give them uh, a deeper experience? Now, this doesn't mean that, you know, you start doing things. They're, they're still paying $15 a session, but now instead of a three-hour session, it's a 10-hour session. You need to be compensated for your time. There's economics involved, but how can you continue to give them interesting things that keep them a customer because it is always easier to resell to an existing customer than it is to as long as they're satisfied you know unless you did a bad job but uh <laughs> but as long as you did a good job it's going to be easier to get that person to buy again than it is to go find somebody brand new off the street you know that's you can Ugh, marketing's exhausting so that's where we've always invested our time in just being so awesome that people want to 
stay and people want to talk about us so that we don't have to do the self-promotion stuff. <laughs> so for the end, um, John, you had some resources that are, are helpful uh, for someone that's looking to go pro. Kind of off what you just said, part of being a pro or being an entrepreneur is knowing how to duplicate your efforts. So little things like especially if we're talking about GMing in particular would be like when you're driving on your way to work, what are you listening to or what are you doing? Are you just sitting in the car silently or are you listening to someone else talk about the game or talk about the game's design from a different angle? So I do have some recommended resources for anyone interested in energetically turning pro. So less the money part that we just talked about, more the showing up part. One of those resources that we're going to mention is uh, Stephen Pressfield's book, which we've talked about, The War of Art. Uh, but he also has two follow-ups to that book called uh, Turning Pro and Do the Work. And in uh, just a, a quote from Turning Pro that speaks to what you were talking about, um, he, yeah, Pressfield is talking about what it means to turn pro. And he says, it changes what time we get up and it changes what time we go to bed. It changes what we do and what we don't do. It changes the activities we engage in and with what attitude we engage in them. It changes what we read and what we eat. It changes the shape of our bodies. So obviously that's, you know, it's very intense, but it speaks to what you're saying, where if you're, if you seriously want to go pro, you need to start thinking about you know, if you want to create a side hustle, you got to get serious about your time, you know, and, and what you're doing. And you can't be scrolling through TikTok two hours a night if you're going to try to have a main hustle and a side hustle. You know, you have to it, you have to change how you do things, how you show up and and who you are when you show up, if you really want to be serious. So some of these resources that I myself listen to pretty much as soon as like another like podcast or video drops first is Trant Monk's Temple especially for professional GMs one of the things that I recommend looking for and the best GMs I've played with are very knowledgeable about how the rules work that doesn't necessarily mean that they are bound to them it's more that beyond what the rules say, they know why the rules interact with other rules in specific ways. And even though uh, Trant Monk's delivery can be a little dry, a lot of the videos are up to an hour long. Content-wise and clarity-wise, I have not listened to or read another resource that so clearly breaks down all of the little nuances of how the rules are written, how they interact with each other, and also some clever little changes you can make that make the game smoother. And that would be going pro, is being willing to sit through the drier educational material rather than just be entertained by fun flashing things and you know the quick cuts that happen in the videos that are clearly only there for your entertainment to get views. You know, you, you want to dive into the actual source material rather than just watching the fun, flashy three minute YouTube video or TikTok. On that topic, um, a new resource since we first uh, talked about this that I actually mentioned at the beginning is the Ghostfire Gaming podcast. 
Um, there are usually four hosts with it. I respect each of them. They all have awesome things to say. And in particular, I find myself out loud saying yes or nodding along when James Hayek is speaking. They're a uh, D&D designer that helped co-write the Taldore campaign setting with Matthew Mercer, which is the critical role uh, third-party product. While Treant Monk will come at the game from a very literal interpretation. This is what the rules say and this is what it means. The Ghostfire Gaming podcast usually comes from a more conceptual design space where this is an interesting piece of design because this may incentivize players in this way because. So I think that if you have both of them, they create a very yin-yang relationship with each other where you get the kind of the drier educational material and more the inspirational conceptual design material. Another YouTuber I listen to a lot, mostly because a lot of times they end up disagreeing with Treant Monk's opinion outright, is Pack Tactics. I think that Pack Tactics has a lot of good things to say about the game's underlying math, and I find them highly opinionated and sometimes a little reductive in their arguments, where it's like, this option is bad, of course, moving on, <laughs> rather than picking it apart in the same way that Treant Monk does. So again, kind of that absolute statement thing. They don't do it enough where I haven't listened to them, but there are often points where I find myself disagreeing with them, which is why I listen. Because if all I was listening to were voices that I agreed with, I don't think I would be a well-rounded intellectual in this space. That's oh. also that's also a huge part of turning pro is being willing to listen to the counter arguments and challenge your own preconceived notions of what you think is right and wrong or or what you think is is good or bad, you know, and just create like getting curious. The it becomes about learning um, and service more than it is about you. It, it expands outward. Now, I know you mentioned not just listening to kind of entertainment creators uh, earlier, Stephanie. And I do find that a lot of the community likes it. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with it. There's, it's just, you know, it's being willing to expand what you listen to and not just listen to the candy all the time. So just, just so that we're clear, like, you still eat the candy, you know, just just put some vegetables in your diet. Yes. And I find that it's a great way to keep kind of a thumb on the pulse of where the community is at. So the two kind of like more entertainment or infotainment channels I listen to are Bob World Builder and Ginny D uh, XP to level three as well. Although I don't see them posting kind of infotainment. A lot of times it's just skit comedy. <laughs> but the reason I put that is a lot of times, especially Ginny D, she doesn't necessarily say anything super revolutionary where I had never considered it before. And a lot of times she says it in a way where I reconsider my thoughts on it or refine my thoughts on it. And interestingly, I like seeing how a lot of the comment threads react to her. So she also has just very clean presentation and 
the the biggest lesson I can get out of her is how concise she is. So she rarely has a video that's more than like 10 minutes long. So especially for GMs, I feel like GMs more often fall in the trap of being verbose as opposed to concise. So when it comes to concisely delivering your message, just from more like a format perspective, she's really helpful to watch. Would she? Would you say that she is professional in the way that she shares information? Yeah, and it's why I think <laughs> that she's grown so huge as a channel. And uh, I don't want anyone to forget that a few years ago, before this OGL debacle, she was the one representing the D&D community during Wizards of the Coast's live presentation. Another voice I haven't listened to as much, and I can't figure out why. But every time I listen to a video, I'm like, of course, is Matthew Colville. So from MCDM, I think part of it is that our preferences, and this is actually a compliment to him that his he's so clear with his preferences about the games he likes to play and run, don't align as much as with other creators. Like I find with Treant Monk's Temple, I like line up exactly with what his thoughts are most of the time. But with Matthew Colville, a lot of times he has good nuggets. And probably the reason is I have to do a lot more work kind of sifting through the information to figure out the nuggets of wisdom I can take away versus the nuggets of wisdom I can leave behind. So it's just, it's a much more, there's a lot more effort I have to put in to listening to his videos to get a lot out of them. I think it's important as a professional, like when you're turning pro, whether it's just as in a mental, as a mentality or actually taking money, you need to be willing to absorb those dissenting opinions because your customers may have those opinions. They may be looking for those things. So you need to understand deeply the counterpoints to the way that you do it so that you can speak to why you do it the way you do it. And again, it's not my way is better than your way. You know, you see that a lot in the martial arts, you know, like, oh, jujitsu sucks, you know, and like whatever, you know, everyone thinks their style is the best. Um, we choose to not have that attitude. Our style is the best if it works for you. And jujitsu is the best if it works for you. It depends on your goals. So the more that you understand the varying opinions that are out there, the more you're going to be able to understand your customers and also explain to them why you choose to do things the way that you are. And and it should always, in my opinion, come from a place of there is no one right answer. This is just how I've found it works for me at my table. So this is what we're going to do here. So I respect your opinion. That's great at different tables. It's just not my table. Now. And speaking of, there's a lot going on with it. Um, If you are a fifth edition DM in particular, I cannot more recommend the book, The Monsters Know What They're Doing by Keith Amon. It's a thick boy, but it goes through, I think, every monster stat block in the monster manual and just like line by line, like, all right, this monster has a plus two wisdom. This is what tactics it would reasonably use as a creature with plus two wisdom. When the monster hits 35 hit points, it will attempt to run away using this specific bonus action. It is like almost like a play-by-play of the mechanical tactics of how to run monsters. And just reading through it, there's enough flavor 
to be able to situate it in a game environment. But in terms of usability, I find it one of the best supplementary texts to the fifth edition library that's possible. Uh, Keith Amon also has a blog also called The Monsters Know What They're Doing that expands to some of like the more specific stat blocks. So I know that there are some blog posts he put on how to run certain monsters from Eberron or Wildmount, all that stuff. But I think if you're serious about being an awesome DM, I, I just, I can't recommend that book enough. And again, it's not even you have to run monsters this way. You're just increasing your knowledge and increasing your education. And there are some really surprising counterintuitive tactics that he advised that make a lot of sense and make the game a lot more engaging. Is that a book that you could take non-sequentially? So like you could just open it up to a monster and, and prep for a session? Yeah, absolutely. It's more of a reference guide than it is like read it uh, cover to cover. And there's also been times like the module I always recommend is Lost Mine of Fandelver. You've had really good experiences with Stormwreck Isle. But for example, let's say at the beginning of Stormwreck Isle, you crash on the beach and there are four zombies that your party has to fight. Like what you could do is you could just pick up the book, go to the zombie section, and it would say like, the zombies start combat this way. These are the decisions they're going to do on turn one. These are decisions they do on turn two. So especially for newer DMs or DMs just looking for inspiration, it's just such an invaluable resource. The last one are books that we've talked about in earlier episodes of Borrowing Brilliance. When I think about personally ones that were most transformative or ones that I found most immediately helpful, the three that I really kind of distilled it down into were The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz, uh, Start With Why by Simon Sinek, and like you mentioned, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. The only reason I don't recommend Turning Pro, which is what we're talking about in professionalism, is just because I haven't read it yet. Although Turning Pro is the middle section of the War of Art. Yeah, you get you get the very much get the gist in the War of Art. Um, and then the he almost took so there's three sections of the War of Art, and then I feel like book two and book three kind of expanded on the the second and third section um so you don't need it uh but if you need a kick in the butt about getting serious it's that that's what those books are good for like war of art is more than enough um but if you're really like if man if you want to replace your day job and you're done being a whatever a pencil pusher and you're like i want this i want to i want to do everything i need to do to become a professional gm then you know going through the series of of turning pro and doing the work can kind of and it's not like you read them sequentially and there's information i really feel it's more like uh, they're, they're books on really getting your head on straight so that you're just like fired up and focused and you understand that what makes it work is you doing the work you know like you have to take it seriously if you want it to be serious yeah structurally we've uh we've talked in private about how a lot of bestsellers follow this kind of formula of they start with a story to engage you and then give you information after and i think what sets the war of art apart is it's more of a collection of poems 
So just the the style of how it's written is very different from other similar mindset books that I've read. Yeah, it's the type of book where you could take like the chapters are very short and you can just read one a day as a reminder, you know, and you can even once you've read it through, you can go to it section by section, um, not to go down that rabbit hole, but you know, like the first section is all about the resistance. So if you're really feeling like you're stuck, um, just reminding yourself that everybody feels stuck, you know, so looking at going back to that section will remind you that you're not alone. And it'll reorient you on you know the enemy as Stephen Pressfield talks about you know and then if it's time where you need to focus on who do I need to be to make my dreams come true that's the turning pro section you know and then you can you could just flip to a random page in that section and get what you need the other the other book that I would add to this list um that's a I I just love him because he's such a light entry into all of this stuff and he's so sneakily casual with deep stuff is uh soundtracks by john acuff in terms of yeah (laughs) uh in terms of uh just thinking about the language that you use um also establishing culture because if you have soundtracks that you repeat um about certain things you know that evokes emotions it also connects people back to to culture so you know like in the dojo we have soundtracks from training of things like the shape of the body has power and half of all power comes from knowing how and when to relax things like that and those are things that we can come back to again and again in classes in the end uh we talked about a lot of things that could be discouraging for someone thinking about being a professional DM because there's a lot of components to it. Um, But I do want to kind of advocate for the fact that being an entrepreneur is, is an amazing journey and doing something like providing a service for other people and then getting paid for that service is a really cool feeling. Um, So if, if you're excited about doing the work if you're passionate about providing a professional experience for people um i i think there's a lot of opportunity right now especially if you do it right to to really get to take something that you love and find a way to balance the amount of time that you want to invest into it um because i think there's a lot of us out there that wish we could play more ttrpgs but you know, we have other life responsibilities, but if you're getting paid for it, you know, now it, it kind of, it, it, it has a little more of a purpose and a value in your life. So if it's something that you're interested in exploring, this is a great time to, uh, to put yourself out there. Thank you everyone for listening to today's episode. Our theme song, The Lounge, is brought to you by Fesleyan Studios, and you can check out more of their awesome work at fesleyanstudios.com. This podcast is also a proud member of the Darkmoor Podcast Network. To discover more excellent TTRPG content like this, head to darkmoorpodcasts.com. Last but not least, to support this podcast, make sure to drop a five-star review in your app of choice. It's a little thing that goes a long way. Have an awesome day and an awesome time at the table. Bye-bye now.